very much, Betty. Let's take our Bibles and open to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. One of the great joys that I have every school year is to spend some time with the parents who come during that first wow week. About 2 o'clock every Saturday afternoon after you all have moved in and your parents have kind of gotten themselves under control, as they say goodbye to their little precious darlings, they come over to the dining center and they get to spend a little time with Dr. Stead and Don Hescott and Bob Guyman and myself. And one of the joys of my year is to stand up in front of your parents and tell them that I am in no way, nor is the administration of this college, promising them semi-millennial conditions with respect to sin. So many times I think the parents' expectation is that if we could just get our daughter or our son to go to a Christian college, it would be in that Christian college that there would not be the influence to drugs or to immorality or to cheating or to the kinds of vices which so fill the secular colleges and universities like USC or UCLA or some other secular situation. And I think sometimes they carry in their minds a delusion that that those kinds of things don't go on at the Master's College. I mean, after all, this is the college John MacArthur is the president of. This is the college that honors the Word of God. There's no way that that college would have those kinds of activities and behavior. And the reason I stand up in front of your parents when they come that first year and tell them that that is not the situation, we are not promising semi-millennial conditions. In fact, there is sin on our campus. There is lots and lots and lots of sin on our campus. And it is not the kind of sin that somebody happened to break the dress code. It's the kind of sin that uh, some people are involved in drunkenness. People are involved in drugs. People are selling drugs. People are involved in homosexuality. People are pregnant. People are getting abortions. On and on and on down the list, many of the things that Betty so sensitively and so loving has shared with you this morning. Because that's what's going on on our campus. Those are the kinds of problems that we're confronted with. And the reason that I want to make that very clear with parents, and the reason that we have made that very clear to the board of directors of this school, and the reason that we continue to make that very clear to um, other concerned parties is because I do not want, nor do the deans want, to be put under a situation such that we have to be constantly working to try to make this campus pristine pure. We do not want to have to fulfill some unrealistic promise that at the Master's College those kinds of things don't happen. Because as soon as we make that promise, we turn into your enemy instead of your friend. As soon as we promise somebody semi-millennial conditions, as soon as we say, boy, there's no sin here, and if we know about it, we just get right after it, and we just deal with it, we just knock that student right out of school. And there are many colleges which have an automatic dismissal policy on drunkenness, drugs, cheating, and pregnancy. The only question is, did you do it? And if they can prove you did it, you're out. And they have underneath that a whole bunch of other systems which are uh, collateral in nature, subsidiary. They are not as, not as drastic, but there are equally clearly defined consequences to every behavior. And if you do this, then you get this treatment. We have none of that at the Master's College. We have none of that at the Master's College. There is nowhere a pre-assigned, predetermined response to a certain sin or behavior. Every single case is treated individually. Every single case is treated with the incentive and the mindset for restoration. And so a whole list of behavior with corresponding penalties, should that behavior be violated, 
does not exist at our school. Because we do not want to have to labor under the police Gestapo mentality that it's our job to find out everything that's going on on the campus. And as soon as we find it out, move in and stop it, either by dismissing people or or burdening them with some external punitive type damage in your life. Whether that be dismissal or a fine or being campused or suspended. We want nothing to do with that. Why? Let me give you five reasons why we don't want to have anything to do with that. Number one, it doesn't work. It just simply doesn't work. You can go to the most legalistic colleges on the face of the earth today. The most stringent code ethic where every single thing, exactly how long the dress can be, exactly how long the hair can be, exactly this, exactly that. And then to back all those code ethics up, this very detailed ascending level of response by the dean's office, you can go to those schools and you'll find that they are dismissing and confronting more sin than we are. They don't have a pure campus. All that stuff does is it drives the sin deep underground. The dean's office becomes a Gestapo agency and the students begin to try to function in some subculture of fear and intimidation, hoping not to be found out because they're confident if they're ever found out, they're immediately out the door. It just doesn't work. It also doesn't work because that's not true righteousness. You could never legislate true righteousness. Jesus defined in the, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that true righteousness, the righteousness of the kingdom of God must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And as you know, the scribes and the Pharisees were the kings of legalistic code ethic with penalties for failure to conform. And Jesus looked at them over and over again. And if we went to chapter 23, he just curses them, chapter 3 of Matthew, over and over and over again for their hypocrisy. They had an external form of righteousness and Jesus said it's not enough because it's not true righteousness because true righteousness comes from your heart. You can't legislate true righteousness. Number one, it doesn't work. Number two, it's got the wrong goal. It's got the wrong goal. The focus becomes on punishment and conformity rather than restoration and completeness and wholeness and a lifestyle which is truly pleasing to God. Number three, it promotes a dependency on an external system. Students who come out of a, out of a, and I'll just go ahead and throw a name out here since everybody's thinking about it, come out of a Bob Jones mentality are very dependent, very dependent on the external system. They have been, you know, handed with kit gloves out of the home environment, which typically was very legalistic and very stringent. And very punishment oriented. And they get handed to the college now for the 18 to 22 years, the critical adult development years. And they find themselves in the exact same system. And what in the world are they going to do when there isn't a dean walking around with a big stick to beat them on the head because they didn't get up at the right time in the day? It breeds an unusual dependency upon an external system. And so when summer comes and they're off the system or graduation comes and they're off the system and they're finally outside of the long arm of the law, so to speak, they just don't know what to do with themselves because none of it was ever internalized. None of it was ever the product of a love relationship with Jesus Christ, the study of God's word and meaningful interaction with other Christians. Number four, we don't do that here because it teaches a passive rather than an aggressive attitude towards another person's sin. 
When you get raised up and when you function in an environment like that, and you're not an RA and you're not an RD and you're not a dean and you're not a vice president of student affairs, and you see it because you live in the dorm and you see somebody else who's in sin, all you do is you put your hands in your pockets and you say, well, I got nothing to do with that. Because the way they deal with sin around here is you've got to have a badge on your chest and you've got to have demerits in your pocket and you've got to have some administrative authority to come crushing into the situation and either kick the person out or make them conform. I don't have that authority. I don't have any demerits. I don't work for the dean's office. I'm just a normal average person, so I can't help you. And so I take a very passive attitude towards my brother who is in sin. That's unbiblical. Absolutely unbiblical. We'll talk about that in a minute. It produces, by the way, churchmen, when you graduate and you become families and you, and you join churches and you establish churches in cities, oftentimes when you've come through that kind of educational system, when you get in your church and somebody, a neighbor, a Christian brother, another family is involved in sin in the church, there again you've learned to just put your hands in your pocket, look at them and say, well, I'm not the pastor, and I'm not the deacon or the elder. I'm just an average, ordinary church member. So I don't have any authority, so I can't help you. That, too, is unbiblical. I'll never forget my first time at Grace Church when I was on staff, the pastoral staff there, about five years, well, no, about ten, year, about ten years ago. Um, somebody came up to me and said, Russell, you need to do something about so-and-so. They're involved in such-and-such. And it was bad stuff. It was adultery. And they were coming to me, the, the, a pastor, a, a man on staff, a person with a position and an office and a title. And this normal, average, ordinary church member was coming to this person in authority to report the violation so the person in authority could go deal with the violation. It's completely unbiblical. I said to them, I can't help you. You know about it. What are you going to do about it? And as we go today, we'll talk more about that. So we don't do that here because it teaches a passive rather than an aggressive attitude towards sin in the body of Christ. And the last reason here is that, as I have already said, it reduces the dean's staff to the role of enforcement. What we have in our deans, what we have in our resident directors, and what we have in our RAs are, are people who have big hearts for other people. They love other people and they're in the ministry rather than in the business world making lots of money and the other options that are available to them because they want to serve God and that means they want to invest their lives in people. And when you force those quality people into a legalistic setup where you have to demand conformity through administrative pressure, you just take a whole group of quality people, staff people, and you reduce them to policemen. And, and very few people will go to a policeman and say, you know, I've been struggling with my driving these days. I, I just average about 85 miles an hour every time I get in my car. I was wondering if you could help me. He, and what does he say? He says, sure. What's your driver's license number? And he writes you a ticket. I mean, hypothetically. If you, if you have a school that functions on a legalistic code ethic conformity mentality than, than the quality people on your campus who are trained and who are here to genuinely get involved with your life and give you the kind of help that will really make a difference, they get put on a shelf called policemen or enforcement. And we lose their expertise and we lose their strength and their wisdom and their desire to move in and to really help. So those are five reasons why we don't do it here. It doesn't work. It's got the wrong goal. 
It builds dependency on an external system rather than a relationship with Christ. It teaches a passive rather than aggressive attitude towards sin in the body of Christ. And it reduces our quality staff to a subsidiary role. The biblical command is to restore. It's interesting when you think about the the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we have communion in my church, I'm reminded of this. You realize before Jesus ever left the planet, he gave instructions about what to do with the sin in the church. Sin in the church is not a surprise to God. He knew we would have that problem before he ever left the earth. And so he gave us the whole sacrament of communion. Communion is a time for the body of Christ, a local assembly with the blood and the bread before them, symbolic of his life and his death and his resurrection. A time to stop and make self-examination of my spiritual walk. And the reason Christ gave us the Lord's Supper is because he knew we'd need it. He knew before He ever left that each and every one of us who are Christians and who name the name of Christ struggle with sin. Struggle with sin on a regular basis and in a profound way. It's not a surprise to God. And it shouldn't be a surprise to you or to me. So the question isn't, can we get sin completely eradicated from the Master's College campus? That's a fool's idea. It will never happen. And if you try to make it happen, you'll only destroy the atmosphere that could be there for true growth. The question that I'd like us to ask and answer this morning is what should our response be to the sin that is here? How are we going to respond to the sin on the campus? Let's look at Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. The word restore there is used throughout the New Testament in various different places. In Mark chapter 1 verse 19, it's used of James and John. And they are restoring. They are sitting in their boat and they are restoring a net, a fishing net. They'd obviously been using it, and in the process of using it, it had been caught on something, and so it had torn and and frayed and fragmented. And as a result, that net was no longer as useful as it was before. I mean, the whole idea behind a net is that you catch things in it, and once they're in it, they can't get out. And if there's a rip in a net, they go out the rip. And so this very useful instrument has now been rendered useless because it's been torn. And the same word that you look at in Galatians 6, 1 is in this other passage in Luke, excuse me, Mark 1, 19, to restore. And what those two men are doing is very carefully and very skillfully and painstakingly, they are sitting in their boat on the seashore and they are restoring the net back to usefulness, back to its original design, bringing it back to be able to be used as it was originally intended to be used. That is what we need to do with the sin on the master's campus. When you or when I fall into sin, 
It is as if we have ripped the usefulness of our life. Because as you know, Christians who are in sin are not as useful to God as Christians who are walking by the Spirit. And so in a sense, we have ripped the net of our life. And instead of God issuing commands to move in there and beat them on the head until they are dead and punish them and frighten them and put them into a fear mode whereby they now conform to mere external behavior, the gracious, compassionate heart of God says step into that life for the purpose of carefully and painstakingly mending the net. It sounds so much like God to me. The restorative God that you and I have says move in there and carefully mend the net because I've built this net for a purpose. Each and every one of us has a purpose, a part to play in the kingdom of God. We hope you're here preparing for that in your studies and in the things that you learn and in your participation in the missions conference and maybe a missions trip and all the life experiences that are going to happen to you in the next four years. And for some of you, the remaining one or the remaining two, praise God, you're almost out of here, right? As you continue to move. But we are hoping that it is as you have been with us, you are building on the foundations given to you by your parents so that you can experience usefulness in advancing the kingdom of God. And so when you sin, when you are involved in drinking, or you're involved in immorality and sex, or you're involved in pornography, or you're involved in masturbation, or you're involved in all these different kinds of things... We do not look at that and feel threatened by that and say, "Uh uh-oh, that student is violating my promise to keep a pure and a perfect campus. That's not the reaction. The reaction is one of, oh my goodness, here is a human being that has come to Christ, that has been created new in Him for good works which God prepared from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 2.10, and in this behavior, they are ripping the usefulness of their life. What can we do to help sew that thing back together? There is no greater joy and there is no greater fulfillment than being used by God to do what He created you to do. And there are passing pleasures of sin. And there are various kinds of adrenaline rushes that come from these sins. But each one of them rips our lives. And each one of them robs our usefulness for the kingdom. And each one of them is a lie and it is a deception of Satan and he would like for you to follow it all the way to your grave because he loves to inflict misery. He loves to devour people. And that's what happens. When you and I believe the lies of Satan and pursue the passing pleasures of sin for a season, we are ripping our lives, our usefulness for the kingdom of God, and we are walking down a path of deceit which will never give ultimately what it says it will give. It says fulfillment and it is emptiness. It sells, it says pleasure and for a moment and for a season it is, but it eventually inflicts more guilt and destruction and pain on your life than could ever compare with the pleasure. It's a lie. The term restore is also used in the medical sense. It's, a, it's also a medical term. And it's the idea of orthopedics. You know what an orthopedic surgeon does? He, when you break your bone and you fracture your bone, he, he restores the bone to usefulness. I remember as a, as a high school student, I made the mistake of trying to run track. And the coach put me in the 330 hurdles. I don't know if you've ever even seen the 330 hurdle race, but it, 
by the, about the sixth or seventh hurdle. I think there's eight hurdles in the race. Everybody out there, no matter how good shape they're in, looks like they're going to die. Because it's kind of a sprint the whole time, but you have to get over these hurdles along the way. And by the, you know, these last few hurdles, the, the legs are wobbling and people are weak. And it's just a horrible thing to watch. Of all the races. I don't know why I said yes. But I was running this race, my very first race ever, and I was coming to the last hurdle. And as I jumped over the last hurdle, with I'm sure horrible form... I landed on my left foot, which was the right one. I mean, I was supposed to come down on that one. But I broke my navicular, which is a bone in your ankle. And so I needed to go to an orthopedic surgeon, which I did. And he took x-rays and casted me up and said it'll heal the way it is. And so I got out of the cast in about three months. And then I was getting ready to to, um, play another sport. Uh, I was given a scholarship to play football in college, and so I was trying to recover from this injury. Tracks kind of late in the senior year. So it was over the summer that I got out of this cast, and I ran a couple miles and did some sprints, and it felt pretty good. And then I was playing tennis with my brother-in-law, and I made a move for a shot, and I heard this crack. And the navicular opened up again. So this time, the orthopedic surgeon put some screws in there to try to keep it tight. And I showed up for... um, I missed my freshman year of football. And I showed up for spring training, right, after the first year is over. And I had been relatively quick, not real quick. I mean, I wasn't any marvelous, tremendous athlete. I was just an average guy playing for an average-sized school. And uh, my 40 was about a 4-7. I didn't think they do 40s anymore. But it was pretty quick for a quarterback. So they had me get down there, and everybody was running their times. And they started the clock on me, and I came in with like a 5-2, which is slow for alignment. You understand what I'm saying? It was gone. It was all gone. And I say that and share that with you only to, to say that, that while God is committed to restoration, while God is committed to putting the bones back together, a level of damage can be done in the breaking process, which never gets mended. You know what I'm saying? Especially in today's world, we can get ourselves involved in the kinds of activities which breaks the bone, so to speak, tears the net. And and everybody around is committed to putting the net back together and mending the bone. And we do. But some damage has been done in the interim and it's never the way it was. And you can actually forfeit what you otherwise could have been used of by God. I don't say that as a threat. I just say that. As a, as a point of wisdom. The choices that you begin to make right now can so fracture your life that though everybody helps and tries to put it back together, you may never get to do the things that God had called you to do from the beginning. You'll forfeit a level of usefulness in the kingdom of God. So the commitment is to restore. And by the way, that was true in my life in football. I mean, I never ever got to play. I mean, you don't I just never could cut it. I was too slow. And it was gone. And, and so I never got to play. And, and I, that doesn't bother me because I don't think, again, I don't think I was going to go play professional. I'm not some tremendous thing. It was just I, I lost that opportunity in my life. And I'm sorry for that. I wish I'd had it. It would have been fun to see if I could have actually made the team and if I could have played and what that would have been like. Forfeited opportunity can come from the broken bone. God's heart is for restoration, not punishment. God restores people in three ways, basically. 
Number one, he can restore you through the ministry of the Spirit of God in your life without any help from anybody. You think of Psalm 32 and David there describing the pain and the anguish and the dried upness, the feeling like the summer heat and how his whole spirit subjectively just felt like a desert. That's because he committed adultery with Bathsheba, excuse me, and had not confessed his sin. And God was trying to restore him back to usefulness. And God did it directly from God to him through the Spirit. Now, eventually, he brought Nathan along. But the first level of attack was just through his Spirit. And we see that in Philippians. Let me just read you the verse. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. One of the ways that God restores you when you fall and me when I fall is just directly between God and you through the Spirit of God. He convicts you. He makes you feel guilty. He causes those things to happen in your life. And sometimes, just based on that, you'll repent of your sin and be restored. Another way, the second way that God restores us is through His Word. Let me read to you 2 Timothy 3, a very familiar passage. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate. The word adequate came, comes from the same root as the word restore. You're struggling with your sin. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. You go to the Word of God. You ponder an appropriate passage. The Spirit of God drives it home. The Word of God purifies your soul. You repent and you're restored. You go to chapel. Somebody's speaking on the very issue you're struggling with. They're speaking from the Word of God. The Word of God penetrates your heart. You're restored. You stop that sin behavior and you begin to walk with God. So one, God can restore the fallen brother directly through His Spirit. Two, through the ministry of the Spirit, energizing the Word of God on the soul. And the third area, the area we want to talk about today, God restores the fallen brother through fellow brothers. One of the ways that God has designed for you and for me to get back on the path of obedience is by having concerned, loving people show up in our lives, sit us down, and begin to ask some hard questions, and begin to offer some good advice, and begin to, from my heart, say to your heart, you know, I really love you, and I'm hurting because you've torn the net of your life, and I'm committed to you. I don't want that to happen to you. And that brings us back again here to Galatians 6.1. Now, I want to ask three questions about this, this little verse. Three quick questions. They are, one, what does it mean to be caught in a trespass? Do you see it there? Brethren, if, even if a man is caught in any trespass, what does that mean? To be caught in a trespass. The second question then I'd like to ask is who are these spiritual ones? These you who are spiritual. Who are they? And the third question is, what, tell me about this spirit of gentleness. What does that look like? So question number one, what does it mean to be caught in a trespass? Basically, the word trespass means to step aside, to step off the path. A deviation from the right direction. And the word trespass can be used of a gross sin where you've stepped a long way off the path. It can also be used of just a little step off the path. Just kind of a quick little stumble and I'm only a, just a touch off the path. 
Now, the context of this verse would be back in chapter 5. And it's the classic battle between the flesh and the spirit. Look at verse 16 in chapter 5. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. If you're a Christian, there are only two states to be in. Not California versus Washington. It's two states of, of, of as you are. There is the state of being under the influence and the control of the Spirit. And there is the state or the condition of being in the flesh. There isn't a third option. Right now, as you sit in your chair, you are either in the Spirit or you are in the flesh. And you are either moving in the direction of the Spirit or in the direction of the flesh. There is no stagnant status. Spiritually, it's impossible to just stand still in a stagnant state. Here I am in the flesh and I'm just staying here. You'll stay in the flesh, but you'll be, be becoming more fleshly. Or you will be becoming less fleshly towards spirituality. If you're in the Spirit, you'll either be continuing to pursue the things of the Spirit of God as He controls your life, or you'll be in reverse and you'll be headed for the flesh. There's only two states, the flesh or the Spirit. To be in a trespass is to be in the flesh. It is to be in the status of the flesh. Look at it in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What, of course, he's saying there at the end is if that is the habitual practice of your life to be in the flesh, you can be sure you're not truly saved. But we who are truly saved and who don't have that as the consistent habitual practice of our life can nevertheless slip into that moments of time in which we are in the flesh. In opposition to that then is to be in the spirit. And that's in verse 22. The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So at any given moment, you... Even at this moment, me at this moment, we are either in the flesh or we are in the spirit. There is no no man's land. If you are in a trespass, you are in the flesh. You have stepped off the path of righteousness. You have stepped off the spirit-filled life which produces the fruit of the spirit into the domain of the flesh and self and independence. And it's there that you're caught. You see it, brethren, if any man is caught in any trespass. And there are two lines of thought, and I don't know which one I like. I mean, which one is right in interpreting this word caught. One line of thought is this. You're caught in the sense that you've fallen into it. You kind of were subtly drawn into the domain of the flesh. And then once you were in there, you suddenly came to your senses, and there you are sinning again. Well, I don't think I like that too much. Because I don't know if I've ever you know, experientially, and you don't base doctrine on your experience. But I don't know if I've ever kind of just suddenly somehow fallen into sin and didn't even know it was happening. Usually there's red lights going off in my mind about the time I'm going to sin, 
and the conscience is very active and the Spirit of God is screaming in my ear, you idiot, don't do that. That's sin. That's a violation of God's law. So I don't think I, I particularly favor that option. The other option is this. The sinning brother, having volitionally stepped off the path of righteousness into the flesh, is found out in that condition by somebody else. Caught, so to speak. To be found out or to be discovered in sin. So what does it mean then to be caught in a trespass? To the best of my understanding, it means that you were walking in the Spirit as a believer. That's your characteristic pattern of life. But for various reasons, you chose to step off of that into the deeds of the flesh. And having been in the deeds of the flesh, a brother or a sister has now discovered your condition, found you to be in this condition. And he may have found you out by your sarcastic words as you sit in your dorm room. And out of your mouth comes sarcastic words of anger about another person on the floor or somebody who's trying to steal your girlfriend or a teacher who graded you unfairly in your opinion or your parents. You're caught. You've stepped off of the path of righteousness into the domain of flesh and it's been found out by your brother or sister in Christ because out of your mouth came this sarcastic anger. Or it may have been that somebody found those wonderful cheat notes that you had up your sleeve as you headed in for your biology exam. Something which worked well for me before I was saved. I was horrible. Or maybe you got caught in your struggle with anorexia and your roommate finally figured things out and you've been found out. That's all that means. If Even if a man is caught in his trespass, now here it comes, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Who are the spiritual ones? Well, again, I think we have to determine that by the context. Verse 16 says that the spiritual ones of chapter 5, look at it, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The spiritual people are simply the people humble and meek, lowly. It doesn't mean they have theological degrees. It doesn't mean they have titles. It doesn't mean they have offices and positions and power and pastorates and elders and deacons and deacons' wives and elders' wives. It doesn't mean that you were the founder of the church. It doesn't mean that you have some incredible status. The spiritual ones are just normal, average, everyday people who happen to be walking in the Spirit of God. It means it's you and it's me. It's people who, by our very practice of life, are trying to continually be under the control of the Spirit of God. That makes us spiritual people. It doesn't mean you've read a million books. It doesn't mean you know everything about the sin condition you just found out in somebody else's life. It doesn't mean that you're the authority on discipleship. It doesn't mean that you come from a strong, godly Christian family and you know all these wonderful things about sin and about righteousness. It just means that wherever you are in your Christian life, whether you're immature in your Christian life or very mature in your Christian life, you're walking by the Spirit. That makes you a spiritual one. That makes you a spiritual person. Question number three. What is this spirit of gentleness? You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Gentleness. I love this word. I think this is what Betty was describing. 
the root word for gentleness is connected with other words that come out of that same root that describe a loving friendship. With a spirit of gentleness, with a spirit of loving friendship. It rules out any anger, harshness, brutality. The idea of gentleness embodies a friendship which is loving in the face of insults, lenient in their judgment, consistently assuming the best of the fallen brother. Restoration is to be done in a spirit which is not distant, not aloof. You're doing this again. You're in this sin again. Restoration is not to be done with a spirit of anger. You gotta stop this. You gotta stop this now. It's not to be done with a haughty attitude or a hard, dictatorial, critical spirit. Restoration is a gentle spirit of compassion, of loyal friendship, marked by an empathy which is reflective of the gentle spirit of Christ which originally restored the restoring brother. You can't picture a more loving, caring, compassionate scene than one brother coming to another brother in a spirit of gentleness. Look what it says there. Looking to himself. As I come to confront you, I'm looking to myself. I'm very mindful that the roles could have been reversed last week when I was so angry at my wife or my kids or whatever. I'm very aware of who I am and my frailties and my sinfulness and my fragile little frame before the Lord. I don't come to you out of superiority and haughtiness and pride with a dictatorial spirit demanding that you change. I come looking to myself lest I too be tempted or I too be tried. You put me in the balance. I'm not going to come up much better than you because I'm a sinful person too. But I come with real compassion out of genuine love which describes the most noble friendship. So often, especially in a setting like this, real friendship is defined as knowing something bad about somebody but not telling anybody about it and not doing anything about it. I can't tell you how many students come into my office and say, I'll never tell you what so-and-so did. And I wasn't even asking. But we might be on a subject that pertains to what some people might have been doing together. Because sometimes when a student comes to deal with their sin, they weren't isolated in that. And it's some great mark of true friendship to say, but I'd never mention the name. I'd never confess. I'd never narc. I'd never share any of that. I'm a true friend. And I think to myself, the opposite could not be more true. And I'm not saying by that, give me the name and all the facts, because if they tried to do that, I'd say, no, you need to go restore. You're welcome to tell me the situation. I don't want the name. And I'll be happy to hold you accountable and help you along the way. But I'm not a policeman. The total spirituality of the Master's College campus is not my responsibility. It's our responsibility. It's oftentimes the way it is with our thinking. We totally reverse biblical truth. We think that what is true, actually biblically, is totally the opposite. True friendship is not a friendship which will never confront 
Never hold a person accountable. Never move into a person's life who is struggling with drunkenness or anorexia or bulimia or chronic masturbation or sexual immorality or this long list of things that we've got. That's not friendship. That's a lack of love. That's a timid, cowering lack of love. Again, I'm not advocating bringing the long list and getting trying to get somebody in trouble. I don't think that's loving either. I think that's as cowering. But I think what represents Christ's likeness, what I think represents true strength and true maturity and a true loving relationship, is if you're aware that your brother is in sin, restore him. Get your hands dirty. Be willing to be accused of the same sin you might have been involved in last month. Be willing to suffer their anger and their defensiveness and their accusations and the guile that will come out of their mouth and the social ostracization which might occur because you've tried to do that. You want to be a loving friend? You count that cost. One of my good buddies, Kelly Bird, used to be a student here at the Master's College, uh, was ASB president, um, was an RD for us, I've discipled him for about eight or nine years. We're not sure who's discipling who. Went to seminary. He now works for us at the church over at Foothill Baptist Church. He kind of runs the thing. You know, he's in charge over there. It's such a joy. He's got a heart for restoration. And he's close enough to my life to see what needs to be restored. When he comes to me with something... As he ought to, in gentleness. And he begins to bring the subject up. You know what starts going through my mind? I start, my heart starts beating really fast. Because I don't want to be confronted with my sin. I do, but I don't. And then as he begins to lay the scenario out with questions and real love and real concern and real commitment, my heart begins to race even faster because he's right. And I'm caught. I'm supposed to be on the path of righteousness and I'm over here on the path of flesh. And I get so defensive. Love him like a son. He loves me like a brother. I get so defensive. I want to push him right out the car. Shut the door and drive away. If you're willing to be a restorative person, I promise you that you will be met with defensiveness and anger Oftentimes lies or a restatement of what really happened, a rationalization of behavior, a sense of withdrawal from that person you care so much about, fear in your heart that that relationship will never be what it was before. That is all part of the territory for agents of restoration. But I ask you to do it. I ask you to do it because God asked you to do it. I ask you to do it because that's what will make the Master's College the Master's College. We don't want to be a school of rules and regulations and fear and intimidation and conformity. We've got tons of sin here. I know it. The rest of the administration team knows it. Dr. MacArthur knows it. The board knows it. The deans know it. You know it. Why try to keep pretending and hiding it and trying to be fearful of what might happen. Seek help. Restore your brother, and if nobody's coming to restore you, find somebody who will restore you. And it doesn't have to be us. It could be your church. 
It could be a counselor. It could be a faculty member. Find help. I got to pray. I've run long. I'm sorry.